0: Well, good morning, good morning to those at our Cross Point Mill Creek campus, to those here at our Sugarloaf, those here watching online, and those who are watching on computers, those who are watching by any kind of device, and those watching TV, we're grateful that you joined us today. You know, sometimes you don't have to say a lot to say a lot, and you probably would like for me to take my own advice more, okay? But in just a few words, you really can say something that will stand the test of time, be remembered and repeated for hundreds, if not thousands of years. You can basically, in just a few short words, say something that can make a tremendous worldwide impact that will never be forgotten. Let me just give you a few examples, Here, here's one. I have a dream, Martin Luther King Jr. Change our country. Ask not what your country can do for you, Ask what you can do for your country. Probably the most famous one-liner ever given in an inauguration speech by President Kennedy. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Got us through a world war. A government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from this earth And maybe the greatest single speech any president has ever given. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Change the Cold War. When they go low, we go high. Great statement. Don't count the days. Make the days count. Just a few words. And they just kind of stick to your mind like glue. Then here are two or three more that will bring a smile to your face. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Love that. Here's another one. You don't need a parachute to go skydiving. You need a parachute to go skydiving twice. You know you're ugly when it comes to a group picture and they hand you the camera. There's just something about that you just don't forget. And just a few words and just a short, pithy, powerful sentence can make what I call the memorable Hall of Fame. It's something that you don't forget. It's something that you bring up over and over and over. And we learn it's not the quality, quantity of what you say that counts. It is the quality of what you say that counts. And that is so true today of the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. Now, if you're a guest of ours or just now tuning in, we are in a series. It's one of my favorite I'll do this year. We're in a series that we've entitled, Why Jesus? Why Jesus? Jesus, of the other over 4,200 religions in the world, why do we as Christians say we have the only faith that we should follow? Of all the religious leaders who have ever lived, why do we say Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever lived that everyone should trust and everyone should obey? Why would we put ourselves out like that? Why would we do that knowing we're gonna be called narrow-minded, disrespectful, intolerant, bigoted, fundamentalist, mean-spirited, cruel? Why, why, Why would you do that? Because we have to face up to the fact that there are three things that set Jesus apart, not just from every religious leader who has ever lived, but frankly, from every person who has ever lived. That is his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus lived an unequaled life. He is the only person who ever lived that claimed to be without any sin, and as of today, whose claim has never been disputed by his family, by his friends, or even by his foes. Now, today we're going to look at his death because he died a unique death. Now, before we say how it was unique, let's say how it was not unique because death in and of itself is not unique, right? Uh, There's a statistic that will never ever be broken and that is one out of one people die. Death is universal, death is inevitable. Everybody dies, good people die, bad people die. Church-going people die, non-church-going people die. Atheists die, Christians die. Uh, Democrats die, Republicans die. Death plays no favorites. Everybody dies. It's not unique to anybody. It is universal. Medicine can't prevent it. It can only postpone it. As a matter of fact, what we call living, we really ought to call dying. Because from the moment a baby comes out of that mother's womb, that baby is beginning to die. That's why we ought to call it death insurance, not life insurance, because the truth of the matter is, at the end of some day, we will be at the end of all of our days. So in and of itself, death is not unique. And for sure, every person who has ever lived at one point or another has asked the question, is there life after death? But nobody has ever asked the question, is there death after death? After life, because we all know the answer. <clears throat> even little children begin to figure out when pets die, dogs get run over, when, 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 when parakeets don't, you know, just fall in their cages. Little children even know, okay, there's such a thing as death. And so the, we don't have to ask, is there death after life? We already know the answer to that question. So you say, okay, well, what is it about the death of Jesus that is so unique. Because even crucifixion itself was not unique. You can't really say, well, that's that makes his death unique. 30,000 Jews got crucified. He was only one of 30,000. So even the way he died really wasn't all that unique. But what made his death different from any other death that's ever been experienced, what made him dying different from any other person who's ever died, is the reason why he died and the results of his death. That's what makes it so unique in the history of this entire world. In the past, in the present, in the future, nobody's ever died. Why he died? No, ever had the results of his death that he has, that he and nobody ever will. You say, well, How do you know that? How do you, where do you get that? Well, here's where this little, just a few words comes in handy. Because today we're going to look at just one half of one verse, not even an entire verse. We're gonna look at one half of one verse and we're gonna find out all that we ever need to know about what it was that made Jesus's death so unique and made him therefore so unlike any person who has ever lived. So if you brought a copy of God's word, I want you to turn to a book called First Peter. I'm gonna help you find it. Go all the way to the back. This will be the easiest thing. You will hit maps and indexes and all that. Start turning left. You'll hit Revelation, the last book in the Bible. You go about two or three books, you will find First Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Now, remember, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was a witness of the resurrection. He was with Jesus the night before he was crucified. So he kind of knows a little bit about what he's talking about. And so remember now, what we're doing is answering the question, why should everybody, not just some people, not just most people, not a lot of people, Why should everybody only look to Jesus to have a relationship with God? And why is he the only one that can make a relationship with God happen? Well, it's not just the way he lived that tells us he's the only one. It is why he died that helps answer that question. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and Peter said we ought to look to Jesus and only Jesus. And Jesus alone, if we're going to find three things, we need to have a relationship with God. Number one, I look to Jesus as my permanent sacrifice. I look to Jesus as my permanent sacrifice. Now remember, Peter was one of the 12 disciples, but he was also one of the inner circle. Jesus had three guys that were real close to him, Peter, James, and John. Peter was one of the inner circles uh, in that inner circle of Jesus. And now he's taking us back to the cross. He's looking back to the cross and he's telling us not what just happened physically. We know what happened physically, he died. But what happened spiritually, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Once. Jesus died for sins. And as we're going to see in a moment, not his sins, Our sins. But Peter says, I want you to understand something. He didn't die as a martyr. He didn't die as an example. He he didn't just die just to kind of show us this is the way brave people die. He died as a sacrifice. Now, to be sure, crucifixion was horrible physical suffering. But the real suffering that Jesus did and the real suffering he experienced, it comes in that operative word, in that word once okay? He suffered once for sins. He died once. Now, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek language. This will be kind of good for you to learn. The Greek word for once will be familiar to some of you. It is the word hopox, okay? Hopox. Now, some of you will know what that word refers to. If you remember studying English, you remember a term called Hopox legomenon. if you studied English literature, you know what that means. A hopox legomenon is a word that only occurs once in a book or once in an essay or once in an article that was written by some author. I remember when I took English in college, we were reading literature. One of the things our professor did, said to us was, <clears throat> when you read this story, there's a word that's only used one time. And I want you to remember what that word is. You're gonna be asked that on a quiz. That's where I learned the term. It is a hopox legomenon. It's a word or a phrase that's used only one time. Peter says that when Jesus was sacrificed for our sins, it was the last and the final sacrifice that will ever need to be made. Now, to a Jew, that would be just mind boggling. To a Jew, that would be a breathtakingly New concept, because to atone for sin, Jewish people through their history had slaughtered millions of animals. I mean, millions of, them. as a matter of fact, during the Passover, when Jesus was crucified, during the Passover, they would sacrifice, listen to this, over 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed just during the week of Passover. But then Peter says, Jesus gave the sacrifice of all sacrifices. He died the death of all deaths because he permanently took care of the world's sin problems. One of the last words, as you know, that Jesus ever said on the cross was, it is what? It is finished, he said, that's one of the last things that he said. That word literally means paid in full. In Jesus's day, when a man was put into a Roman prison for a crime against the state, they would nail a document to the door of the jail where he was. You could go by and see what this guy was in jail for. And what they would do is they would list all the crimes he had committed, everything that he had done, what his punishment was, how long he'd be incarcerated, what penalty he had to pay. And when he had finished, when he did his time, when he paid his debt to to society, they would take that piece of paper, take it off the wall. They would write over that document on that door that one Greek Word, which literally means paid in full. And that man could take that document anywhere he wanted to go. If he wanted to get a job and someone found out he'd been in prison, he could say, yes, I was, but I have paid my debt to society. When Jewish priests were making sacrifices day after day after day, and when the high priest once a year would go in the Holy of Holies and make the ultimate sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, they had something in common. They never sat down. The high priest never sat down. The priest every day, just those daily priests, when they went to work, when they clocked in and they clocked out, one thing they could never do, not even to eat lunch, they never sat down. They never stopped. But the author of Hebrews 2,000 years later said, but when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, you don't sit down until the job is done. You don't sit down until the work is finished. And that's exactly why Jesus sat down. Let me tell you what that means for us. Because sometimes we still don't get it. Sometimes Christians don't get it. Church-going people don't get it. People who read their Bibles don't get it. I want you to listen carefully. We don't have to make any installment payments for our salvation. We don't have to leave a tip. There's no unpaid bill. Jesus did not make a down payment for our sin. He once for all paid for our sin. So Peter said, you know why Jesus and why Jesus alone and why Jesus only? Because we look to Jesus, not just as a sacrifice, not even as the sacrifice, We look to Jesus as a permanent sacrifice. He died once for all. But then Peter says something else. He said, not only do we look to Jesus as our permanent sacrifice, I look to Jesus as my perfect substitute. My permanent sacrifice, he died once for all as my permanent substitute. Now we're gonna get a little deep here, so stay with me. Jesus died. We all know that. I die, you die, he died, we all died. Jesus died, but he didn't die for himself, just for himself. He died for you. He died for me. He died for us. He died for we. He died for anyone who has ever lived or ever will live. And this is the way Peter put it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, You probably never ever think about this or you've never thought about it before. But let me tell you why you ought to read this book. Let me tell you why you ought to read the Bible. Let me tell you why you ought to open it up and and, and just see what's in it. I don't care whether you believe it or not. I don't care if you think it's just a bunch of fairy tales and myths. I don't care if you don't buy anything's got to say. You really ought to read it. I'm gonna tell you two reasons why. Number one, I mean, it's an old book. I mean, this book, this book goes, takes you back like, you know, 5,000 5, years. How many books do that? But here's the other reason. And if you're egotistical at all, this will really motivate you. You're in it. Yeah, you. You are in this book. I'm in this book. As a matter of fact, we're actually almost named specifically on several occasions, and this is one of them, because you could substitute your name there for the unrighteous. I I mean, I could do that. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for James Merritt. The righteous for Steve Overcash the righteous for Scott Hines, the righteous for Teresa Merritt. That's you. He's talking about you. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how wonderful you think you are. I don't care if you can get in front of a mirror every morning and seeing how great thou art, It doesn't matter to me. You're unrighteous compared to God. You are absolutely unrighteous. The righteous died for the unrighteous. In other words, here's what Peter says. On the cross, he traded places with us. He shouldn't have been on that cross. We should have been on that cross. He shouldn't have been dying. We should have been dying. He died for us. He died in our place. Now you say, how does that work? Okay, hang with me. Why do people die? You say, well, that's a dumb question. We get old, we get cancer, we have heart attacks, we get diabetes, we choke on food, we, you know, whatever. It's not why people die. People die because of sin. That's why everybody dies. The ultimate killer, the number one killer of the human race is sin. A prophet named Ezekiel wrote these words. The one who sins is the one who will die. Diabetes doesn't kill you. Heart disease doesn't kill you. Cancer doesn't kill you. In the end, that may be the tool God uses, but the reason why we die is sin. As a matter of fact, years, centuries later, an apostle named Paul wrote this. He said, the wages of sin is death, Not the wages of overeating, not the wages of smoking, Not the wages of drinking. I mean, that may kind of lead to your death. But the real reason why we die is sin. See, before Adam and Eve sinned, death was impossible. But after Adam and Eve sinned, death became inevitable. Now, think with me. If sin is what kills us, we just said last week, Jesus was sinless. Okay, so wait a minute. Jesus was sinless, right, right? Jesus died, right, but sin is what kills everybody, right, but Jesus didn't sin, right, therefore there can only be one reason why Jesus died, he died for our sins, see we've already said that Jesus was sinless and said sin is the only cause of death, he shouldn't have died and yet he did. He should have been crucified because he was innocent of any crime. He shouldn't have died because he was innocent of any sin. And yet, when you read the Gospels, he was flogged. He was stripped naked. He was spat upon. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was nailed to a cross. And he was crucified. Why? All right, follow the logic. If sin is the cause of death, and Jesus had no sin, but Jesus still died, and we're the only ones who have sin there can only be one cause of his death, our sin. I've said this before. The Roman soldiers did not kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. We killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. My sin killed Jesus. The only explanation for his death is he died on our behalf. He died in our place. He died for our sins. He was our Substitute, but wait a minute, time out. Not just any old substitute will do. We needed a perfect substitute. You say, why? If you hadn't heard anything else I say, and you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Only someone without sin can die for sin. You got it? Only someone without sin can die for sin. We can die in our sin. We can't die for our sin. Jesus didn't die because of his sin, because he had no sin. He died for our sin. That's why he's called righteous. He had no sin. Only the righteous can die for the unrighteous. Only the just can die for the unjust. Only the sinless can die for the sinner. Only the perfect can die for the imperfect. That's why when you go back and read the Gospels, it's really interesting. When you go back and read Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and John, in the first two-thirds of every Gospel, it almost seems like you're going at warp speed. You're covering a lot of ground in a hurry because remember, when you read the four Gospels, you're covering three years in the life of Jesus. Three years. And I mean, you are, I mean, you are really moving on till you get the last week of his life. And you get to the last week of his life and it's almost like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put the brakes on, puts the governor on the the engine, takes their foot off the pedal and says, whoa, 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 wait, come out. We're gonna slow down. I, I don't get it. We're blowing through three years of his life but you get to the last week and now you decide to slow down. And there's so much detail. There's so much information. There's so much there. And here's why. Because the last week of Jesus' life actually focuses on the last three days of his life. The Lord's Supper, the Passover, and the crucifixion. Because remember, Jesus was crucified during Passover. Now, as you well know, Passover was the biggest holiday festival celebration of the Jewish calendar, and it still is today. And it's a celebration of how God passed over the sins of the nation of Israel when he delivered them from the land of Egypt. Here's what was going on. So let me just take you back 2,000 years. Everybody was excited about Passover. It was kind of like what we do today at Christmas. You know Everybody takes weeks, a week or two off at Christmas. They did the same thing. You took the whole week off at Passover. It was the biggest festival of the year. And down in the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem, where we're gonna be going in the next couple of months, down in the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem, you had these Levitical shepherds. They had one job. Their job was to raise up lambs to be sacrificed during Passover. There were hundreds of thousands of lambs grazing all over the area of Bethlehem getting ready for Passover. But these lambs were special, very, very special. They were not gonna be taken to market They were not gonna be used for food. They were not gonna be served in a restaurant. They were being raised for one purpose, to be sacrificed. And every lamb had to pass a rigorous test. Every lamb had to pass a very meticulous inspection before they were deemed worthy of sacrifice. Here's what would happen, it's amazing. There was a battery of priests. They were specially trained to do this. There was a battery of priests. They would begin with one lamb and they'd do this all day long for weeks and weeks and weeks. They'd take a lamb and they would perform a physical on that lamb. They'd do a checkup from the top of that, from the crown of that lamb's head to the sole of that lamb's feet. They would look inside the mouth. They would thumb through the fleece. They would survey the hooves and the eyes. Even they would look under the eyelids. If there was any flaw, any blemish, any scratch, any bump, if there was even a flea bite, the lamb was rejected. Why? Why? because God had made a mandate and he said to those priests, don't you sacrifice anything except a perfect lamb. Only a perfect sacrifice would do. And now you know why it was a big deal. When John the Baptist was hanging out one day with a couple of people who had become Jesus' disciples and Jesus went walking by, and you remember this, he looked at Jesus and he said, look, look at him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because John knew something. See that guy walking right there? He's not like you. He's not like me. He's not like anyone who's ever lived. He's not like anyone who's living. He's not like anyone who ever will live. He is absolutely perfect. He is our perfect substitute. So Peter said, I'll tell you why we can only look to Jesus and Jesus only. He is our permanent sacrifice. We don't need any more animal sacrifice. I don't need any other Savior. I don't need any other intercessor. I don't need any other mediator. He sat down. Work is over. And he is my perfect substitute. He's the only one that could pull this off because he could die for my sin because he had no sin. then he tells us one last thing. This is my favorite part, by the way. I look to Jesus as my personal Savior. Yes, he is my permanent sacrifice. And yes, he is my perfect substitute. But I look to Jesus as my personal Savior. Now listen, I want you to see how Peter wraps this up. This is so good. I wish I'd written it myself. Why do you whether you are a Muslim, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or a Jew, religious, non-religious. Why do you need a permanent sacrifice? Why do you need a perfect substitute? Well, Peter tells us, you ready? For Christ also suffered once for sins, permanent sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, perfect substitute, to bring you to God, personal Savior. I want, you to, I want to tell you something that's true about everyone that's ever been born and whoever will be born. This is true about your next door neighbor It's true about every priest, every preacher, and the Pope. It's true about everybody. We need somebody to bring us to God. We need somebody to bring us to God. You say, no, I don't need anybody to bring me to God. I can get to God on my own. No, you can't. You cannot get to God on your own because there's a barrier between you and God and you're gonna hit it every time you try to go there on your own. And that is our sin. On our own, in our sin, we cannot come to God. We can't get to God by ourselves. By the word, by the way, that word to bring, to bring you, that word to bring, it describes someone who has the authority to bring you into the presence of a king or the presence of a ruler and give you access to him. It is an official term, just like today. I can, and I've been there, I can fly to Buckingham Palace. I can't just walk in there and say, hey, Queenie, how's it going? You can go to the governor's mansion. You can go to to the statehouse. You can't just walk into the governor's office and say, hey, Gov, what's going on? You can't do that. You just can't walk into the office of a king or a president or a governor or a ruler. Two things have to be true. Number one, you have gotta be invited. And then number two, you've got to have access. You've gotta have someone who has the authority to take you into that person's presence. I've told you before uh, about the honor I was given uh, of meeting with President George W. Bush the week after 9-11 in the Oval Office. And and I've told you this story before. You know, and to kind of refresh your memory, I'm, there was about 26 of us. It was a week after 9-11, and, and there were 26 religious leaders. I was one of them that had been invited to the White House to, to draft this ecumenical statement on prayer. And so we're, we're all sitting in the Eisenhower building there across the lawn there, and we're all supposed to go to meet with the president in the Roosevelt room. So we've been sitting there for a while. And so Tim Gagline, who was the religious liaison official for the White House, comes in. He says, I need to see the following seven people. He read off seven names. I was one of those seven names. And we didn't know what he wanted. So we all walked. Franklin Graham was with me. So we all walked out. And uh, Tim said, uh, gentlemen, the president wants to see you in the Oval Office. And I said, you know, Shazam, I'm going to the Oval Office? He said, yeah, you're going to the Oval Office. I said, Really? I think I've told you this before. So we're, we, I said, you know, we're walking across the, the hall, and the, uh, the the lawn there, and I said, can I call Teresa? My wife said, yeah, 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 call her. I called Teresa. I said, honey, she said, you won't believe this. I said, I'm going to meet with the president. She said, I know you're going to meet with her. I said, no, 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 no. He's called me to the Oval Office. She said, what have you done? I said, I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> he's called me to the Oval Office. I don't know what I've done. So we all go, we're escorted, and and we're sitting there in the Roosevelt Room where we're all supposed to meet with him later on. So we're sitting there in the Roosevelt Room. Now, I didn't know this. I didn't know that if you just walked outside the door of the Roosevelt Room, turn left, and walk about six steps, you're right there in the Oval Office. Here's what I want you to hear. I'm sitting in the Roosevelt Room, and I'm only, as, as the ruler goes, I'm only maybe 15 feet from his office but I may as well have been in Afghanistan because without someone that had the authority to bring me to the president, I can't go see him. Now, I could have tried to go on my own, but I would have gotten a bullet hole for a naval or an orange jumpsuit as I was carried out of the place. I mean, I had to have somebody to say, hey, you can come in. And Carl Rowe finally walked in and said, gentlemen, the president will see you. That's how I got in. I had to have somebody to bring me to the president. And likewise, you don't have the moral authority. I don't have the moral authority. We don't have the moral authority. We don't have the spiritual ability just to kind of waltz into God's presence on our own. It doesn't work that way. He is a holy, perfect God. We are imperfect, sinful people. We need somebody that can bring us to him and the only one that can do that is a personal savior who's earned that position by being our permanent sacrifice and our perfect substitute. And sorry, Mohammed doesn't fit the bill. And the Hare Krishna doesn't fit the bill. And Confucius doesn't fit the bill. We need someone that has the authority and that has the ability, that has the credentials, that has the approval, that says, I can get you in. And that leads me to tell you one of the most incredibly true stories I've ever come across in my life that perfectly illustrates everything we've been talking about up to this point, okay? So I need you to do me a favor, okay? Put down your pen, put down your paper, put down your notes, close your books, turn off your phones, get all, get off all that just for a minute, okay? I promise you, I give you my word, this will be worth getting up and coming to church for, this story. It's a true story. It actually happened. Never even read it myself till about six weeks ago. Didn't even know the story existed. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable, you gotta hear this story. There was a man who lived in Long Island, New York. His name was Marcel Sternberger. He was originally from Hungary. <clears throat> he was a creature of habit. He always took the 902 Long Island Railroad train from his home in Woodside, New York, where he would catch a subway to go down into the New York City where he worked uh, every uh, on, you know downtown. Well, on the morning of January the 10th, 1948, this is 71 years ago, on the morning of January the 10th, 1948, he decided when he got up that one morning, he was gonna go in later downtown because he had a friend that was deathly ill, didn't know if he was gonna really live very long or not, and he wanted to go visit with this guy. So he goes to visit with this man, and then he goes to catch the 12 o'clock train down to the subway, but he had never taken this train before. Well, when he got to the train, the car was crowded. There were no seats available. He thought he was going to have to wait on the next train. But just before the door, door closed, a man all of a sudden jumped up. Maybe he realized he was at his stop. He jumped up and, and, and ran out the, the, of the cab. That left one empty seat. Sternberger jumped on, and he took it. As the train took off, he looked over to his left. There was a man sitting there, in his about 30-something years later, his early 30s, and of all things... He's reading a Hungarian newspaper. So he said to himself, this, this guy must speak Hungarian. So he said in his native Hungarian, would you mind if I read your paper, read your paper? Well, the man, of course, was shocked to hear someone speaking to him in his native tongue. So they struck up a conversation. They're speaking Hungarian, and they struck up a conversation. He said, hey, tell me your, tell me your story. He says this young man, tell me your story. So the man said, well, my last name is Paskin. He said, during the war, I was a law student, but the Nazis came and they took me out of school and they forced me to, into a German labor battalion and they sent me to the Ukraine. And he said, I spent the war there uh, where, uh, burying, uh, uh, you know, help, trying to help fight the Russians until the Russians defeated us. I was captured by the Russians. They put me to work burying dead German soldiers. Well, when the war was over, he was freed. He traveled hundreds of miles by foot to get back to his hometown of Debrecen, which is a large city in Eastern Hungary. As he walked into the city, the first apartment he came to was where his mom and his dad and his brothers and his sister lived. So he went to the apartment to visit with them, but they were all gone. So he left there and then he went to his apartment where he and his wife had lived and there were some strangers living there. And they said, I'm sorry. we don't know who used to live here, but whoever was, they're not here anymore. So he's walking around the city he met some old friends of his, and he said, man, I'm looking for my family, and they, 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 just, they just felt so bad. They said, we hate to tell you this, but they said, your entire family's been taken to Auschwitz, which is, you know, is one of the terrible German concentration camps. And he said, to, they said, they're all dead. He, he, was just, he just collapsed, he was just crushed, devastated by the news. Well, he no longer wanted to live in Hungary, there was nothing for him there. So he decided he wanted to go to Paris, uh, go to the United States. So he makes his way to Paris where he immigrates to the United States in October of 1947. Now, this man's telling Mr. Sternberger this story. And while he's telling Mr. Sternberger this story, Mr. Sternberger remembered that just four days before this, he was at a cocktail party. And he met a Hungarian woman who told him she was from Debrecen. She had been to Auschwitz and she had survived because the Germans sent her to work at a German's munitions factory. She'd been liberated by the Americans and brought to New York on the first boatload of displayed persons in 1946. Well, Mr. Sternberger was so stirred by her story when she was telling this several days before that, he wrote down her name and her address and her phone number on a piece of paper so he could invite her to meet his family because she was all by herself living in the city and really didn't know anybody. He happened to put that piece of paper in his wallet. So he pulls out this paper out of his wallet And he looks down, and he looked at her last name, and it was Paskin. Well, he thinks to himself, this this can't be just a strange coincidence. So he looks at this young man, and he said, listen, I know we've just met. I know you don't know know who I am. But I need you to trust me. He said, what? He says, "I, I need you to trust me. He said, when we get, when this train stops, I need you to get off the next stop with me. He said, why? He said, don't ask me any questions. I just got a hunch. You just need to get off with me. Well, the man was hesitant, but he decided to trust him and he did that. So Mr. Sternberger went over to a pay phone, told the man to stand over, off to the side. He goes to the pay phone and with trembling hands, he calls this number. When she answered, he says, uh, "Miss Paskin, she said, yes. He said, this is Marcel Sternberger. He said, who? He said, Marcel Sternberger. He said, you remember we met a few days ago at a party. She said, oh yeah, of course. She says, well, well why are you calling me? And he said, would you mind telling me the address of the apartment where you lived in De Brecken? And she did. He put his hand over the phone and he said, sir, would you mind giving me the address of the place where you and your wife lived in De Brecken? And he did. It was the same address. He said to the young man, he said, what's your first name? Uh, he said, Bella. He p- turned around and he said, Maria. what was your husband's first name? She said, Bella, why do you ask? He put his hand over the phone. He said, Bella, was your f- wife's first name, was your, her first name Maria?" He began to tremble. He said, well, yes, how did you know? He said, sir, could you come here for just a moment? He said something miraculous is about to happen to you. I'd like for you to take your telephone and talk to your wife. He gets on the phone. He said he could hear them screaming at the same time, calling each other's name. They were weeping hysterically. Marcel put Paskin into a taxi cab, gave the taxi driver his wife's address in the fare, and he said goodbye. He found out later they had a glorious reunion and they lived happily ever after great story. You say, wow. It was a miracle that that man who normally rode the 902 train took the 12 o'clock train. It was a miracle that he sat next to a man reading a Hungarian newspaper. It was a miracle that three days, four days earlier, he had met a woman named Maria and had written down her name, her address, phone number. It was a miracle that the only man on planet Earth that could bring those people together was a man who shouldn't even have been on that train. And I'm telling you today, that is nothing compared to the miracle of how 2000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the only one in the universe whoever has lived or ever could live, the only one who could take your hand and God's hand and bring both of us together. And he did it by dying on a cross he shouldn't even have been on. So let me tell you something. Yes, I proudly, unashamedly, dogmatically, permanently, forever will tell you Jesus Christ Alone, Because he alone is our permanent sacrifice. He alone is our perfect substitute. He alone is our personal savior. And he is the only one that could trade places and bring us to God. Let's pray together.